It's a great honor for me to be here at the Empire Club of Canada today, which is arguably the most famous and historically relevant speakers podium to have ever existed in Canada. It has offered its podium to such international luminaries as Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, Audrey Hepburn, the Dalai Lama, Indira Gandhi, and closer to home, from Pierre Trudeau to Justin Trudeau. Literally generations of our great nation's leaders, alongside with those of the world's top international diplomats, heads of state, and business and thought leaders. It is a real honor and a distinct privilege to be invited to speak to the Empire Club of Canada, which has been welcoming international diplomats, leaders in business and in science and in politics. When they stand at that podium, they speak not only to the entire country, but they can speak to the entire world. Good afternoon. Fellow directors, past presidents, members and guests, welcome to the 118th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Sal Rabani, and I'm the first vice president, board of directors, the Empire Club of Canada, and your host for today's virtual event titled Healthcare Delivery to Ontario's Northern Remote Indigenous Communities During the COVID-19 Pandemic. I'd like to begin this afternoon with an acknowledgement. I'm hosting this event within the traditional treaty lands of the Mississaugas of Credit and the homelands of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We encourage everyone tuning in today to learn more about the traditional territory on which you work and live. The Empire Club of Canada is a not-for-profit organization, so I now want to take a moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the club and make these events possible, and complimentary for our supporters to attend. Thank you to our lead event sponsors, Billy Bishop Toronto City Airport and Touch Medical. Thank you to today's supporting sponsor, Life Labs. Thank you also to our season sponsors, Bruce Power, Canadian Bankers Association, Leuna, and Waste Connections of Canada. Now, before we get started, a few housekeeping notes. I wanted to remind everyone participating today that this is an interactive event. Those attending live are encouraged to engage by taking advantage of the question box by scrolling down below your on-screen video player. We've reserved some time for audience questions at the end of the discussion. We also invite you to share your thoughts on social media using the hashtags displayed on the screen throughout the event. If you require technical assistance, please start a conversation with our team using the chat button on the right-hand side of your screen. To those watching on demand later, and to those tuning in on the podcast, welcome. It is now my honor to welcome our guests today to the Empire Club of Canada's virtual stage for the first time. They include Dr. Isaac Bogosh, Alvin Fiddler, Dr. Homer Tien, and Willow Fiddler. You'll hear more about them shortly. You can find their full bios on the page below videos player on your screen. Before we hear from the panel, I'd like to invite Carrie Poix, CEO, Touch Medical, to deliver some opening remarks and introduce our guests. Welcome, Carrie, and over to you. Thank you, Sal. Uh, I would like to thank the Empire Club of Canada for providing Touch Medical with the opportunity to sponsor this event. I'm Carrie Bois, CEO of Touch Medical, and I started my career in healthcare in Northern Ontario and had the opportunity to pivot into the tech sector. I've also been pretty passionate about helping startups in Canada. Growing up in an underserviced medical community, I am particularly drawn to today's topic. The COVID pandemic 
has highlighted and exploited many of our disparities in certain communities, especially Northern remote indigenous communities. One of our co-founders, Josh, actually has a family member who's teaching at Cape Dorset, located at the Southern tip of Baffin Island, where there was a real connection to the challenges and resiliency during COVID. At the heart of Touch Medical is the overall desire to develop technology that leverages AI and focuses on the healthcare sector that we feel has been underserviced in this area. We developed a consumer-based solution that is beta testing right now that would bridge the gap of consumers who want to track and monitor their health or those who do not have access to healthcare. One of the projects that we are considering of particular interest with our product team is the opportunity to try and solve the long COVID challenge by adapting our solution to track, monitor, and allow consumers to effectively manage and engage with their health teams. Our global team is committed to providing value-added tools that will allow technology to do some of the heavy lifting in the healthcare sector. We are proud to support today's event and look forward to hearing from this power panel on how we can continue to support the efforts to deliver healthcare to Northern remote communities. Before I hand over to them to get started, I have the privilege of introducing today's guest speakers, uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, Infectious Disease Specialist, University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital, Grand Chief Alvin Fidler, Health Transformation Lead and Negotiator, Nishwabi Aski Nation, Dr. Homer Tian, President and CEO of Orange, and our moderator today, Willow Fiddler, staff reporter, The Globe and Mail. And now, handing it over to Willow to get us started. Willow, it's all yours. Thank you, Miigwech, Carrie, and Sal for those introductions. I'm coming, you for, I'm coming from you today from uh, traditional Treaty 3 territory. Um, and I'm really excited to be a part of this panel discussion as a reporter who's covered COVID in First Nations and as a member of a remote community in Nishnabe Aski Nation. I think there's so much that the rest of the province and country can learn from how uh, communities have had to protect themselves in the face of so many systemic challenges. So let's get started right away. Um, Alvin, we're gonna start with you. Um, and I should actually just, I just want to, to quickly clarify, I know Alvin was introduced as Grand Chief of Anishinaabe Aski Nation. He technically is uh, no longer Grand Chief of Anishinaabe Aski Nation. He previously was, he's now the lead for the health transformation for Anishinaabe Aski Nation, a ve another very, very important role that he's uh, taken on uh, since uh, since he stepped down from the Grand Chief position. So he he's still, um, his experience comes from, from his term terms as, as Grand Chief of Anishinaabeaski Nation. So very excited to, to have him here. Alvin, if you can take us please to Northern Ontario, uh, Northwestern Ontario, um, and briefly describe the state of health healthcare and services in Anishinaabeaski Nation. Geographically, it's the largest region of Ontario. Uh, it's as big as France and home to close to 50 First Nations uh, many of them mo uh, mostly remote and isolated. Um, so if we can just start with what did healthcare look like in NAN pre-pandemic? Sorry, Alvin, you're on mute. Miigwech, uh, Willow, and Miigwech, Sal, and Kerry for the introduction and for inviting us to to be a part of this uh, 
what I consider a very important conversation talking about uh, our communities, especially uh, in, the, in the far north. And we tend to forget uh, those communities that are not uh, within the vicinity of the center of the universe, or Toronto. Uh, so thank you for inviting us to talk about uh, our communities and our challenges and our successes. Uh, yeah, just going back to all those questions, I think it's important for uh, those in the audience to um, continue to educate themselves about Indigenous issues generally. I know over the last year or so, uh, with the, uh, the discovery of, uh, of children's graves across the country and the former residential school sites that uh, it, it's it's uh, shining a light on on the uh, the colonial history of this country and uh, and it's no different in healthcare. Uh, you know the the fact that we are governed differently under the Indian Act and the Indian Health Policy. Uh, it's it's, a, it's always been a two tiered uh, system. And we we even had Indian hospitals. I was born in one of them in Solica many years ago, uh, and we all know that. Uh, that system that was designed for indigenous people is, is far inferior. Um, and when the pandemic hit, uh, you know, those uh, those gaps that were there just became more and more pronounced uh, the deeper we went into the pandemic. And those are that's the work we've been doing over the last uh, uh, two years uh, plus during this pandemic is to not only bridge those gaps, but to build new systems that weren't there before public health, for example, or mental health. So it's it's. Uh, it's forced us, uh, and not just NAN, but uh, Ontario and Canada, our, our government partners, to to collaborate, uh, to work together, um, and then protecting uh, our loved ones, our elders, our, our, our children, uh, our kids uh, from COVID nineteen, and just uh, making sure that uh, we have a good pathway moving forward uh, as we move into the uh, post pandemic world. Can you uh, just share a little bit about? I recall early on in the pandemic, um, there, there, there was an immediate sense of urgency for the remote First Nations because of the current state of, of healthcare or lack of, I should say. Um, what were so? What can you maybe just talk a little bit about a, a couple of you know the what, what were the higher risks for uh, remote Indigenous communities that really um, uh, compelled that sense of urgency? Yeah, I, I think uh, Nan was. Uh, fairly uh, quick to act uh, you know, with the, the threat of COVID. Uh, even back in January 2020, we, we knew something bad was coming to our, ter uh, to our uh, territory, to our communities. And we started writing letters to our, to our leadership to sort of get ready to try to prepare themselves for uh, this virus that uh, we heard about uh, you know, that was in overseas and that was coming. Um, and, and just try to uh, put together their, their own pandemic plans, their own teams, and uh, you know we were very fortunate that uh, we were able to put together uh, you know day three of the pandemic, our own pandemic response team, uh, made up of uh, knowledge keepers, elders, traditional healers, uh, experts uh, that came together very quickly to help uh, support our communities uh, and and just making sure that whatever the communities needed to protect themselves, that they had access to those resources that were so critical, especially in the early days of, of the pandemic. Um, Dr. Bogosh and Tian, I'll, I'll open it up to you if you want to add anything. Um, 
you both have been involved uh, in the delivery of um, services required for, for the First Nations in NAN. Um, what did you guys learn um, about the state of healthcare in, in remote Northern Ontario? Um, I'll jump in real quick. Uh, so for starters, thanks Willow for, for that question. And uh, obviously it's an extremely important point because uh, you know, just calling it how it is, I'm literally sitting on the 14th floor of the Toronto General Hospital, you know, in downtown Toronto. And it's not fair to say that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, we should have any, um, you know, meaningful thoughts about how things should run in, in Northern Ontario. The key here is to really listen to local communities and local leadership. Uh, to really have a better assessment of what the healthcare capacity is, what the healthcare needs are, what the needs of the community are, the perception of the community. And, you know, I think perhaps throughout the, the, this, this chat we're having, you're going to see a recurring theme. And that's listen to local leadership, listen to local communities, and, and, and work together with uh, local leadership. And, uh, and that's exactly what we did. I mean, I was heavily involved in um, the vaccination campaign, for example, here in Ontario. And, uh, you know, my role was really to listen to what local leaders had to say about what their community needs were, what were their perceptions, what were their questions, what were they, what did they want to know about the, the vaccines, for example. And uh, we just spent, you know, endless hours on uh, Zoom and Skype and group chats, just listening just listening to what their questions were and, and listening to what the local needs were. And, and you know, they were great. And, and it's not to say that they were the same. They were actually different than some of the needs and perceptions and issues that we would have in, for example, Southern Ontario. So lots of listening, lots of learning, two-way flow of information and really leaning heavily on, uh, you know, on uh, Alvin Fiddler and his team and, uh, and the local leaders in, in Northern Ontario and the Indigenous communities. I'll just jump in as well, uh, and thanks, Willow. The uh, I think what uh, what Alvin said and what Isaac said in terms of some of the infrastructure problems, the human health resources, and really, I think when we talk about Northern Ontario, I think we have a sense in you know for those of us who live in Toronto to think of Northern Ontario as anything north of Steeles, but I think the uh, the geography that we're talking about here is um, to give it a perspective. Say from our uh, major air base in Northwest Ontario and Thunder Bay, it might be 900 kilometers one way to the northernmost uh, NAN community of Fort Severn. And so when you think that, uh, you know, in the setting of uh, lack of human health resources, lack of infrastructure, and then you add in the, uh, the effect of long distances and weather, poor weather reporting and uh, poor uh, de-icing facilities in, in the north, I think there's a combination of, of things that make it very difficult for people to access healthcare. Uh, Alvin, health transformation in NAN started before the pandemic. Can you um, briefly describe what health transformation is and what did that look like during the pandemic? Because we, we've seen it in action, um, if you can tell us about that. Well, we uh, uh, back in 2015, uh, when I uh, started my first term as Grand Chief of NAN, uh, the chiefs 
the communities uh, with the Steinbass Nation uh, mandated us, uh, gave us uh, uh, direction to declare uh, a state of emergency on health and public health because of just how deplorable the, the situation was on the ground. And uh, we made that declaration uh, shortly after that. And uh, we came together, uh, the province, uh, the provincial government uh, at the time, it was uh, uh, the liberal uh, government. Uh, Eric Hoskins was a minister. Uh, federal government uh, was represented by uh, Minister Jane Pelpot, and we met here in Toronto actually, and we agreed on uh, a set of principles in terms of what we should do to what we can do to begin to transform healthcare for our communities. Uh, we signed that agreement. In some ways, it's you know it's it's groundbreaking when you when I look back now on. Uh, what, what the agreement says. So we began that work uh, in 2019. Uh, we did, uh, we had to build our team and some initial community visits. And then uh, the pandemic hits, uh, 2020 spring. Uh, and we had to keep moving forward. Like we couldn't use this pandemic as an excuse not to just, you know, just to, just to stop and, and sit at home in our basements. We actually had to put health transformation into action. And we saw that on the ground at the community level with our leadership, with chiefs uh, making their, their declarations on lockdowns, passing uh, their own uh, laws and BCRs, bank council resolutions, uh, and, and just transforming public health and, 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 and really being forced to, to build systems that weren't there before, like public health, uh, mental health, and non-hope like just the incredible response that we saw uh, across uh, the NAN territory from our leadership is, uh, I think, to me, it shows why health transformation is, is the way forward, why we need to, even as this pandemic uh, hopefully um, you know, goes away, that we need to keep on that path and we need to build on the work that our communities in, in both Ontario and Canada have done uh, over the last uh, two years or so with, with the COVID response and just keep building on that, on that path. Thank you. Um, Homer, I'm gonna move on to you. You helped lead uh, the successful task of vaccinating thousands of people in, in, in NAN um, as part of Operation Remote Immunity. Um, what were some of the challenges that you encountered and, and what was the response uh, plan uh, or strategy required to, to pull that off? Yeah, uh, thanks Willow. I think uh, we've already talked a bit about geography and weather. Those are sort of ever present factors in the North. Uh, there was a huge time pressure and I think uh, Alvin would remember this as well. I, basically, I think both Nan and Orange were asked to co-lead this and co-develop this uh, in late December 2020. The vaccine had just arrived, and uh, we, you know, one of the principles was we didn't want to bring COVID into the communities, and uh, everyone had to be doubly vaccinated. We had to find people uh, to go there, and we had to finish by early April because of the risk of spring flooding and because of the risk of uh, evacuations for forest fires of the communities that would spread people all over the north. And so there really was a sense of uh, we don't have a lot of time, but these are really just operational challenges and solvable. I think, you know, 
I think if you asked any of this group, the really big challenge was from a, uh, a vaccine confidence, a deep-seated mistrust of, of government and outside agencies. And I think you could say that this is really, you know, generations of colonialism, systemic racism, residential schools, and broken promises. And so this really resulted in a suspicion of the vaccine, the vaccine program, and the entire health system uh, by the community members. And you know, the solution is simple, yet extremely complicated. We, you know, the solution in a word might be trust, build trust, but boy, that's a hard thing to do. And, and luckily, Alvin was there, uh, former Grand Chief Fiddler was there, really step-by-step helping with this. And I think it's concepts of Indigenous leadership and autonomy that are simple words, but uh, really putting those into effect. Um, and so we had Indigenous leaders fully involved in the development of the plan and implementation at all levels. And I think the community members needed to see that their leaders were confident in the plan. So they were all involved in the development. They saw the leaders getting the first shots in each of the communities. Um, I think this group, uh, former Grand Chief Fiddler, Isaac and I, we were on multiple calls asking over the Christmas and in, in January, answering questions about the vaccine, about the vaccine program. And I think in for trust, the, the last thing I'll say is you have to do what you say you're going to do. Uh, so if you're gonna say something, be thoughtful about it and make sure you do it. And one of the things I remember we that uh, Nan had asked for and we promised to do was translated consent forms. And let me tell you, it's a, it's a lot harder than I might've thought to get translated consent forms in Cree, Ojibwe and Oji Cree and have them approved by vetted translators. And, you know, but luckily the, the ministries of health and indigenous affairs were super motivated, worked extremely hard, got them done for us. And it's important to do these things to show that we, we mean what we say and that we respect uh, uh, the culture and indigenous leadership and autonomy. Thank you. A lot of really great points there, Homer. Isaac, you put your thumbs up there when he uh, started talking about the mistrust um, and, and, and the, the, the hard work involved to, to, uh, to change that. Um, you've had some experience with patients uh, where you work, um, uh, patients who've had to come down um, to, to the Toronto Hospital. Can you explain uh, what, what are some of the things that you've learned throughout the pandemic about uh, health transformation and the needs in the North? Right, I mean, thanks, uh, uh, Willow. That's a great point and I appreciate you bringing it up. I mean, long before the pandemic, we know sadly that, that there's just limited healthcare capacity in many of the uh, remote and indigenous communities. And oftentimes if people are sick enough, uh, they, they're transferred to other, other places in, in the province um, and, and some of the larger hospitals and bigger centers. Uh, I'm at Toronto General Hospital. This place is no different. We'll often see patients transferred from, from indigenous communities who require you know, hospital level care and the care that can't be provided locally. And again, always ha happy to help, always happy to see. And I know there's a relationship and arrangements, but you know, just calling it how it is, it's always best to care for people at or near their home, where they're comfortable, where they have the support system, where they have the support network. And sometimes, you know, even again, this predates the pandemic when we see people who have been 
you know, flown out for, you know, procedure A or procedure B at, at our hospital, they don't have their family or their community support network. And that just poses additional challenges to care. Often the medicine's not that hard, right? We know what the issue is. We know how to help out. We know how to, you know, get to the bottom of it. But you really do, it just, it just exemplifies how much of a social support network and a community support network is, is it really goes into the healing and recovery of, of individuals. And, and as you point out, the trust is so crucial. I mean, we have these conversations with, with people. And again, as a physician, like you just want to do your best to help the patient out. You're like you, but you know, sometimes we have these conversations with, with patients and you can tell there is that mistrust. There is that sense of, you know, are we actually on different teams? And, you know, we do our best in an imperfect situation call family, call friends, call community members to get on the phone with the individuals. Sometimes we even have other community members uh, as an ally who, who, who is in the hospital with the, with the patient, um, but it, it's challenging. And, you know, we always try our best, but, but of course there, there are significant challenges. I'll stop blabbing, but one other point during the pandemic, of course, we saw this uh, exemplified and, and, um, as Alvin and, and Homer will point out, you know, um, when we were discussing vaccinations or treatments, you know, the whole goal was to do everything we could to provide the best care possible, support local communities with knowledge and with, with information and with um, technology and with medication and, of course, with vaccines to really ensure that people had the best possible care at home so that they wouldn't need to be transferred. Um, and that's, that's a laudable goal. Now, last point, and then I really will stop. Obviously, there's a long way to go. And, you know, I'll lean heavily on, on Alvin to go into what those details are. But really, there's a long way to go in terms of improving trust, improving uh, support, and, you know, both training of individuals and personnel, plus um, uh, actual hardware and actual infrastructure to provide better medical care. Uh, and psychosocial care in uh, in Northern Ontario communities. Thank you, Isaac. I just want to uh, remind the audience, um, please submit any questions you may have for, for any of these gentlemen here. Um, we will uh, take some time in a bit to uh, get into some questions, but we'll keep this discussion going. So there is a consensus here that um, you know, healthcare really can't return to uh, status quo. Um, you know, as as Alvin mentioned, as we as we hopefully now begin to to move out of this uh, pandemic, um, and that there really is an opportunity here that that you know shouldn't and can't uh, be overlooked. Um, Alvin, what's next for health transformation? Well, I, you know, just to keep building on the work we've done um and, and I'm, I'm you know i'll keep repeating that message to both ontario and canada i want them to not forget the important work that they were a part of uh and it was uh extraordinary to witness you know just how quickly we can move on issues that traditionally it would take us a year or two two years we we're able to put in place those things like in a week or two weeks you know, cutting the red tape, uh, bypassing, uh, you know, certain processes and just moving quickly, knowing that the, there was a, a huge 
sense of urgency on the ground that we could not do things the way we used to do them before. Uh, we created a, a, a trilateral table, for example, where we had senior officials from NAN, from our communities, from Ontario, from Canada, that convened once a week. And they would talk about the urgent needs of our communities and just making sure that things happened right after the meeting. There was an accountability table that we built to make sure that things that we talked about were actually followed up on. Um, and to me, I think that that's, that's a, a great roadmap for all of us that, you know, my fear is that Canada or, you know, the federal government will start going back to the way things were and we cannot afford to, to go back. And I hope that they, uh, and it's a credit to, to every one of us that uh, we're a part of this important mission that we did this together and uh, we can continue to build on that work and really truly transforming healthcare. And then in the North is, is, is the, uh, continuing with that true collaboration that, that we witnessed and that we were part of uh, during the pandemic. Thank you. Um, Homer, what, in your opinion, what, what will it take to continue health transformation in the North? You're on mute, Homer. <laughs> Sorry, two years into it, I still haven't figured it out. The, uh, one of the things that um, I really enjoyed about operational remote immunity, I think my favorite moment was hearing from some of the community members that, that really that they were shocked uh, to learn that their communities were prioritized for the very first time for vaccinations. I think Alvin may have mentioned it to me, and I've heard that from different people. Because they would say we're always the last to get some to get something or anything, something that is important, something that uh, other people want, and this is something that if you remember in 2020, the end of 2020, being in 2021, everyone wanted it, and uh, the the indigenous communities, particularly in the north, were were prioritized to get the vaccine, and uh, so I think they were surprised and and hopeful that this signaled the change in, in how we uh, think about things and view things. So I don't know if this is true, but maybe we might've earned a tiny bit of trust with the communities and leadership. I hope that's true. Uh, we might've earned a tiny bit of credibility. Again, I don't know if that's true, but I hope that's true. And hopefully we can build on this to uh, work with indigenous leaders to keep developing solutions that work. We know what these solutions are. So I'm not a high-level policy guy. I, you know, at Orange is a is an air ambulance, and we have um, paramedics and pilots. We put boots on the ground to deliver healthcare, and so we know that there are operational solutions to some of these problems. Uh, my background is trauma surgery, so I know that there are best practices for trauma systems and trauma care that we can we can implement. Um, to help improve trauma care in, in the northern communities. Obviously, we can't just take them in and transport them as a whole to these communities, but we have to work with Indigenous leadership. Uh, we have to respect uh, the uh, Indigenous autonomy to develop solutions that work for the communities, but we can help provide technical advice and work with the leadership to come up with solutions that work. So. I really hope that moving forward with this bit of trust and credibility that we might have built, we can continue to 
look at uh, discussing solutions that might work and, and making them work for the communities if, if the leadership is supportive. Thank you. Again, a lot of great points in there. Um, you, you touched on, on, well, I think you've all touched on partnerships and the, and the need to collaborate. Alvin, can you expand on that just a little bit? What, and what, what kind of partnerships and collaborations have, have really worked best um, in, in these uh, scenarios? Well, one of the, uh, the first things that we acknowledged uh, when we began uh, our health transformation journey four years ago, four and a half years ago, was that uh, we are not experts on, on health or healthcare. So we had to reach out, uh, not only to uh, uh, Ontario and Canada, but uh, people like Homer, uh, Orange, uh, the College of Physicians, uh, the nursing community, uh, the medical schools, uh, people that do research in certain areas. Uh, so we, we built, uh, I think we, we currently have about 15 or close to 15 uh, MOUs or agreements with uh, professional health designation uh, bodies uh, because we, we knew that we could not do this by ourselves. And I think what uh, the pandemic has, has shown us is that we, you know, that, that's the way we need to, to, uh, to go with that. We need to uh, work with others uh, and just, well, one, I think one of the greatest lessons for me uh, during the last two years or so is just how important, you know, uh, Homer talked about trust you know, and, and the relationships, the partnerships, uh, and, and the communities really stepped up. You know, when they saw that collaboration happen, that they they felt safe, they felt comfortable, uh, and they really stepped up to to be a part of that that work that uh, that happened. Um, there, I just I want, quickly want to touch on because uh, you both make a good point. Um, Homer, you said, you know, we, we might have earned some credibility and uh, there is, I, I see there, there, there's a risk, you know, you kind of one step forward and then two steps back. How, how, do, how do we avoid that from happening here? Anybody can chime in here. <laughs> can I start, even though I'm the least qualified person and I really would want to hear what Alvin says, but I just want to say something before the thought leaves my head. Thank um, you. I think the key here is sustained sustained pressure in the sense that we need sustained collaboration, not just sustained goodwill, but meaningful action, okay? This was through Alvin and Homer, Operation Remote Immunity was one of the biggest glowing successes of, of the pandemic response. It was, you know, a geographic challenge, there were, you know, historic cultural challenges, to put it politely. Um, everything was not working in favor of this being successful. And through going through the right process, there, you know, in terms of truly listening to the communities, listening to the leadership, providing information and tools that were necessary to get people vaccinated, which would protect the communities. It worked and it also worked in a very short time frame, right? You're not gonna, we can't pretend that, you know, in a few months we can put a Band-Aid over hundreds of years of neglect and abuse. Like that's not gonna happen. And I don't think we should pretend that's gonna happen. But if we, you know, these are still meaningful arrows and meaningful, um, uh, this is a meaningful move in the right direction. And, and, and I think it just, like, like 
both everyone on this has, has suggested before, right? We talk about trust. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you're, you know, listen to the leadership, work closely with the leadership of the communities. And again, it's it's not it's not rocket science. Like it's it's pretty straightforward actually. But we actually have to make an ongoing, continual effort to con to, to keep this up, and and it can expand obviously well beyond vaccine uptake and hopefully into mental health care, other health care, other issues unrelated to health as well. Thank you, Homer Alvin. Yeah, maybe I'll add something, uh, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Alvin. Um, I think uh, what uh, Isaac said about sustained pressure is important. I think you know having a schedule. Transformation may have different domains where they want things improved: diabetic care, uh, I don't know, trauma care, or so forth. And I think you know a schedule with an implementation on a tactical level is something that uh, uh, can put sustained pressure on moving the ball forward for health transformation. I think uh, strategically. Uh, we need to focus sometimes, we focus sometimes on personal relationships, where, which are important. So like uh, Elvin and I have worked very closely together, but uh, I think the, the relationships transcend the individual. And so I think what uh, Nan is doing in terms of MOUs and arrangements with or between organizations, and then on a larger extent between, between nations, between, with the federal government, with the provincial government, I think these types of things cement the relationships that start the conversation that build a bit of the trust and we can keep moving things forward. Obviously, uh, Nan has been doing that all along. I think for organizations like mine though, uh, uh, we don't want it dependent on personalities and we want uh, say Orange to continue to support the efforts of Nan because we are a part of uh, healthcare access uh, to uh, Nan's communities and so, uh, I think these things have to transcend personal relationships and trust and be, be uh, institutional trust. Alvin, um, we're going to get to some questions shortly, uh, but Alvin, you've said you, we need to build on uh, that work as a country. What, uh, what can others do to help? I just wanted to uh, just quickly add on to what uh, both uh, Isaac and Homer have said in terms of uh, the that our health transformation journey, I think it's important that our government partners understand what that really means. You know, they need to understand our, you know, when we say health, health transformation, what that means uh, to us and for us. Uh, that it's not about taking over or, or inheriting a broken system or taking over programs that are uh, underfunded. It, it's it's so much more than that. and. Uh, you know, I think that's an, on, an ongoing conversation that we will have uh, with uh, with our government uh, partners that they they need to understand what what it is you know that we were, that we're talking about when we're talking to them about health transformation. Um, so I, I hope to carry on with those conversations uh, in, in in the weeks and, and and months ahead because it's important that we begin or that we we really need to demonstrate to our communities that what health transformation looks like on the ground. Um, and if, if we had utilized the old system during this pandemic, if we had utilized the old policies, uh, the old ways of doing things, it would have devastated our communities. It would have 
killed a lot of our people. Uh, that's why it's so important that we stop. And, and I'm so grateful for us to have this conversation today because it sort of gives us an opportunity to reflect on the work that's been done and why it's important that we need to keep moving uh, on this journey. Thank you. Um, I'm going to get into some questions here. We've got a few. So um, just going off of that, Alvin, what would you like to see governments commit to in terms of improving First Nations, uh, First Nation health care? This is, uh, these are the questions now, guys. Well, for sure. Uh, you know, there has to be legislation uh, that backs health transformation. Um, and right now there's, there is work uh, sort of that's sort of happening uh, federally. Uh, you know, there's there's discussions about a, a federal health uh, framework uh, similar to the child welfare uh, uh, legislation we saw, for example, uh, last uh, last year or a year and a half ago. That there has to be, uh, you know, as we build a system, it needs to be backed by by legislation. And uh, I would hope that. You know the government's commitment to to build this legislation is 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 real commitment to that change. That we it has to be a, a truly collaborative process. Uh, you know, even word for word, uh, similar to what we did on policing, for example, with Ontario, uh, to make uh, our police service an essential service. Uh, so similarly to to healthcare, that uh, I mean that's one piece. Legislation is as I think is is important, and we need to be at the table as equal partners. Um, Homer and Isaac, do either of you want to jump in there? I don't really have much to add on that one. Okay. Yeah, um, the, there, there's a few questions here that have to do, um, I think people are, are curious to hear more about um, what the communities look like now in terms of infrastructure. Uh, apologies if my connection is um, cutting out. Um, so there, there's a question here that what infrastructure exists for uh, ill patients in the north? Um, are there negative pressure rooms for safety of community and staff, isolation locations? How are they cared for before um, evacuation? There's another question here. Do all First Nation communities have landing strips for fixed wing aircraft to land or are helicopters needed in some areas? And then um, this one I think is, is related as well. What factors identified indigenous communities as highest risk in COVID-19 response? That's kind of a jumble, but uh, yeah, I think there's, people are curious to, to hear more about. <laughs> I think uh, those are Alvin and Homer questions. Yeah, no, thank you for the, the, the question or questions. Um, and I think it's important for all of us to to realize that when we talk about healthcare, it's more than, you know, just, uh, you know, talking about nurses or doctors. We're talking about uh, the community, the environment where we live, uh, our access, for example, to uh, clean, safe drinking water. Uh, and, and those were in, in the homes, uh, you know, the, the overcrowding and, and the challenges that existed before. Uh, in our communities in terms of the whole infrastructure uh, of, of, the, of the communities, access to power, for example. Uh, you know, I think it was just became more pronounced during the pandemic and uh, water, for example, just how 
important. I mean, that was one of the, the public health messaging in the early days of COVID is that make sure you have, uh, you, you keep hydrated, you know, you drink lots of water. Uh, well, we couldn't say that to 14 of our communities because they were on, on boiled water advisory, including Muscat Dam. We've been on that list uh, since uh, 2004 or Niskandiga uh, over 30 years now. So that those were the challenges that we had to uh, consider in doing this work and uh, making sure that all our communities had uh, access to clean, safe drinking water, including Sandy Lake, you know, a community that has over 3,000 people there. Uh, so the, these were added challenges that we had to uh, factor into our work. Uh, isolation sites, again, was very important uh, that, uh, you know, if there was a positive or a couple of cases in the community, you had to remove them uh, from their homes. And, uh, you know, and just the difficulty and the challenges to find adequate space for them um, at the community where they can isolate for 10 days or whatever the, uh, the protocol was at the time. So those are some of the ongoing challenges that, that uh, that we will still face moving forward, and, and I would hope uh, that uh, you know that we work with our communities to address these these are long-standing issues that need to be addressed. Um, Homer, I don't know if you want to speak to the um, airstrips uh, question. Sure, I, I can speak a bit about uh, some of the aviation and, and maybe some of the actual healthcare resources. I think. You know, at a lot of the nursing stations, I think they're filled with extremely motivated and uh, and great healthcare pr uh, practitioners that that really offer a lot and care deeply for the communities. I think sometimes they're not as well equipped with the equipment and resources to provide the care. And I think if you can imagine uh, in some of the communities, if you call nine one one, there is no nine one one, and so there is no pre-hospital system so to speak, to get you from where you were injured or where you were sick at home to get to the nursing station or the primary care clinic. And then uh, when there, say you had a heart attack, there may not be some of the life-threatening clot-busting drugs, or if you were bleeding, there, not, there may not be blood products. And so it's really through an aircraft that arrives, a fixed-wing aircraft that lands, that brings the care that you normally would expect to see in an emergency department in Toronto. And that would be your first uh, sort of um, opportunity for in some of the communities, not all of them, to have some of these uh, therapies initiated. Most of the communities have have um, airstrips. There's a couple that do not and are reliant on a helicopter to have access, particularly if they're on an island. And you know, in the summer, you can access it by boat in the winter on an ice road, but during the freeze up and breakup of the ice on a river uh, or the surrounding water, they're completely dependent on helicopter for access. And that type of access uh, can, be, can be limited because helicopters are very uh, mechanically dependent and they, are, they, they don't have the same ability to fly in all weather as fixed wing aircraft. Thank you for that. Uh, there's another, there's a question here. Um, uh, wondering, are there opportunities and the potential for virtual care, virtual care to be used? A really great question. What does that look like in uh, Northern Ontario? Isaac, please go ahead. We do it. We, we, we already do. Um, it's pretty good. It's, there's obviously room for improvement, but uh, virtual care uh, certainly is being done with, with some communities. Um, I 
can attest that like I myself have been involved with uh, seeing some patients and it doesn't necessarily mean you need, even need a big fancy uh, video camera and get, it's always helpful, but sometimes it's even done with a simple telephone call as well. Uh, but it, it is being done formally and informally. There is certainly room to expand it. And of course, this is really helpful because now, you know, uh, geography doesn't matter nearly as much. And uh, you can access the sub, sub, sub specialist that's, you know, in a major urban center hospital uh, and help at least provide care. I would say, again, I'd be very curious to hear what others on the on the chat and of course everyone in the uh, in the audience has to think but like virtual care is helpful upward inflection question mark but it's by no means the same quality of care and there there's truly is no substitute for seeing someone face to face for obviously certain medical conditions for some things it's okay a quick checkup uh you know discussion of some blood work and some updates but really face to face care and in person care reigns supreme the vast majority of the time yeah, I, I would add uh, that one of the exciting projects that I think I think is it's exciting. Uh, one of the health authorities that is pursuing right now is uh, this idea of hospital without walls or hospital without uh, borders. And one of our communities, one of our better communities, and, and just the possibilities of that. Uh, I think you know, just especially now with the, the te technology, I think there's so much potential there. And I, I'm, I think it was a question earlier from one of the audience members about how can we, the members of this club or the members that are on this call, for example, how they can be a part of, of this work. You know, I, you know, sometimes I, I read about, you know, this foundation making a big donation at the Cancer Center in Toronto or uh, the Peter Monk Center. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, you know, the, the, you know, there is no reason why you, you can, you know, also, you know, um, you know, that you can also make donations to our communities is what I'm trying to say. You know, as we build these projects that uh, there'll be opportunities uh, for private foundations or individuals to, to, to support us with some of these uh, exciting projects that we will be undertaking moving forward. So this idea of a, a remote hospital and one of our communities is something that uh, I think has real possibilities. I think there's a saying as it put your money where your mouth is, maybe that, that came to mind there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You said it. A <laughs> couple more questions. Um, here's a, an interesting one. Um, maybe Alvin, you can you can talk to this. Um, wondering how health transformation uh takes into account indigenous knowledge and incorporating indigenous knowledge into healthcare uh processes which is uh key to building trust yeah i mean that's that's very important uh and you know at the beginning of, of this broadcast or this meeting i talked about uh the missing children uh the remains that are being discovered across this country and you know, I think there's a there's an opportunity for this country, uh, for the federal government and other jurisdictions to to really be a part of the of the reconciliation that needs to happen, the journey that all of us need to be on, if we're going to be, uh, you know, be uh, you know, just to to move beyond 
the you know, the messy, the trauma that we always find ourselves in, the crisis that we all that we're always in, uh, because it is tiring, it's exhausting, and we need to find a, a path that, that will allow us to go beyond that. And uh, I would just encourage our government partners, uh, including the federal government, that uh, it has to be a, a respectful um, process. Uh, whether you're talking about uh, creating legislation or just working with us, uh, that uh, you know that uh, that is so important. You know the, the trust that Homer talked about and why uh, you know we saw that during the, the rollout of the of the vaccine. You know, that, that that is so critical. Um, I'm going to combine. There's uh, two questions into one last question because it has to do really with um, I think moving uh, next steps forward and and, and accountability. Um, and anyone can jump in here. But um, how do those of us outside of the Indigenous community hold government and others accountable for not going backwards, and actually using this as the new baseline? Word accountability is key. Um, another question. Um, is uh, I'm concerned about bureaucracy and delays in government. How can we, we replicate the urgency and alignment from your success to get appropriate informed solutions executed in a timely manner? That's tough. Obviously that's really tough. Accountability, I mean, right? I don't know how to address that in the sense that we hear a lot of words and a lot of promises, but it also has to translate into meaningful, sustained impact. Um, and it's, you know, it's easy to talk in high level terms, you know, keeping the pressure on, holding people accountable, but actually operationalizing that is probably, and sadly, uh, a lot more challenging. And, you know, back here on planet Earth, uh, this has been an ongoing issue for a long, long time. And I know Alvin can speak to that uh, much more eloquently than I can, but uh, it's interesting. And, you know, just getting back to what Homer mentioned earlier, there's real, perhaps there's growing trust and growing momentum. And also it's not every day that these issues make their way so prominently in the national media and are discussed with uh, the same degree of intensity among non-Indigenous people, like in, in, in places that are distant from, from Northern Ontario. And you know, maybe, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but this seems to be a growing issue that's appreciated by non-Indigenous communities and other Canadians because of a lot of the attention and momentum that we've seen uh, over the course of the pandemic that's highlighted a lot of the inequities in care. And uh, the, I, well, I think one of the key issues is not losing that momentum. I, I, I'm not entirely sure how, but like any complex issue, I think, pardon the term, multifactorial approaches <laughs> are the best approach. And that means obviously sustained pressure from local leadership, uh, continue, continue national media coverage, ensuring people of all ages in all parts of the country are aware of the issues that face Indigenous communities. I know it's being taught with increasing frequencies in the schools as well. So there's just growing awareness. And I think that adds to a lot of the help. But I truly, 
getting down to the nuts and bolts of operationalizing accountability is, is very challenging. I'd love to hear what the others have to say. We'll hear from uh, yeah Homer and Alvin if you quickly want to add your thoughts on them. Sure, I'll just say quickly, like as a non-high-level policy guy, as someone I guess who's uh, sort of boots on the ground in my organization, I think there are a lot of operational problems that we can help solve if if uh, we work with indigenous leadership and there's a problem of you know how do we improve cardiac care like for an acute heart attack how do we improve stroke care there are solutions to this that that we that are pure that are operational that are based on relationships with uh, uh, other hospitals and different healthcare organizations and with the community I think if we identify targets, timelines, that we can certainly uh, come up with solutions to that. I think sometimes we get bogged down in these large uh, sort of nation level problems. But, you know, if we can save two people tomorrow with a stroke, three people from bleeding the next day, I think we've advanced the ball. And then uh, hopefully when Alvin and his team does the high level work, it's complementary and uh, it ends up moving the ball forward in all domains, both tactically and strategically. Thank you. Alvin, we'll, we'll quickly wrap it up with you. Yeah, I, I, so, you know, just to whoever is listening on this call, you know, the fact that you are here tuning in is, is important. Uh, I always try to end my talks and, and whenever I'm invited to speak at a forum, uh, about what you have learned or what you're learning uh, during this pandemic. You heard about the missing children being found across the country. You probably heard about Joy Sichuan, uh, who died at a Montreal hospital while uh, you know, she needed care. The nurses laughed at her, they, the doctors mocked her, and she died. There's an inquest that happened. You hear about these stories in the media, and it's like the country is finally waking up to uh, what, we've talk, what we've been talking about for a long time. And uh, we just need you to stay awake. We need you to be part of the work that we all need to do moving forward so that we can you know, not only bridge those gaps, but uh, you know, just the equity that we always talk about in healthcare, especially as it relates to our children. There's gonna be a lot of work that we'll, we all need to do post pandemic. We all need to make sure that we have a, a recovery plan for our children, uh, the toll that this pandemic has taken on our kids, for example, is uh, is you know it's incredible, and uh, that work will be ongoing uh, in the months and years ahead. Miigwech, thank you so much for uh, this great conversation. Um, we're going to hand it over back to Sal now. Thank you. Thank you, Willow, Dr. Bogosh, Dr. Tian and Alvin for sharing your insights and perspective and knowledge with us today. I appreciated the conversation. I'd now like to take the opportunity to welcome Jean Cabral, Executive Vice President of Billy Bishop Toronto City Airport to deliver some appreciation remarks. Jean, over to you. Thank you, uh, thank you, Sal. Uh, Sal mentioned, uh, my name is Jean Cabral and I am the Executive Vice President at Billy Bishop Toronto City Airport. Uh, Billy Bishop Airport is a proud sponsor of today's event and an even prouder uh, base of operations for Orange Medivac Services. As I sit here and reflect back in some of the notes uh, from the panel discussion, this powerful panel, panel discussion, it was eye-opening, enlightening on the approach of the issue, 
some of the some of the pieces I take away listening on the local needs, focus on two way dialogue and coordination, building trust. Uh, do what you say you're going to do from uh, from Homer uh, Alvin identifying cutting through the red tape to build efficiencies and needed on a critical timing issue like these powerful statements that we take away from this. As many of you know, uh, Billy Bishop Airport is located on the Toronto Island, just a few kilometers from downtown and the majority of the hospitals in the Toronto area. This proximity has allowed us the efficient provision of emergency services and organ transfers through our airport and our teams work together to facilitate this urgent care. As we heard today during the pandemic, the orange service at Billy Bishop Airport also spearheaded operations remote immunity to ensure that the Northern communities receive timely access to vaccinations in the fight of COVID-19. For reference, Orange flew more than 5,091 emergency flights in 2021. That's an increase over 7% over 2020. As I reflect back to, to a conversation Homer and I had in March of 2020, when we talked about uh, alignment on making sure that the airport would remain open during the lockdown days uh, of the pandemic. Uh, today, sitting here looking back and realizing the grateful role that we played and the small role that we played in facilitating that for Orange. Another organization that Billy Bishop Airport supports and which operates to and from the facility is Hope Air, an organization that provides flights to remote communities so patients can access Toronto's healthcare facilities. This takes the form of free flights aboard our commercial air carriers and also private pilots who donate their time and aircraft to bring patients to, the, to their appointments downtown. One of the key themes today we've been hearing is about keeping the lifeline open between Northern communities and the healthcare services they need, which are so, far, so often uh, so far away. Orange Medivac and charities like Hope Air have been critical in connecting patients to medical appointments and emergency medical services here in the South. And we at Billy Bishop Airport are proud to do our part in keeping this lifeline open. I'd like to thank our speakers, Dr. Bogosh, uh, Mr. Alvin Fiddler, Dr. Homer Tiam for sharing your insights and the power and the perspective of the important topic that, that uh, to, for us today. And I also would like to thank Willow uh, for your expert moderation of this discussion. I will now turn things back over to Sal for his closing remarks. Thanks again to Billy Bishop, Toronto City Airport, and all our sponsors for their support. Thank you to our guests and everyone joining today or tuning in later on demand. I'm delighted to announce that our next event will be our first in-person Empire Nights event in two years. Join us next week on Thursday, May the 12th for an evening of networking and learning with our panel of political pundits inside scoop on the upcoming 2022 Ontario Provincial Election. More details and tickets are available at empireclubofcanada.com. As a club of record, all Empire Club of Canada events are available to watch and listen to on demand on our website. The recording of today's event will be available later today and everyone registered will receive an email with the link. So please feel free to forward it on to your colleagues, family, and friends. Thanks again for joining us today. I wish you all a great afternoon. Take care and stay safe.